regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Cam and Company, where unfortunately we are talking about some infringements today. Yeah, New Jersey Governor uh, Phil Murphy has signed that uh, carry killer legislation at a uh, public library in Scotts Plains, New Jersey, uh, joined by gun control uh, uh, activists from Moms Demand Action, uh, Giffords, uh, and uh, others. I guess uh, Phil Murphy was looking for a gun-free zone to uh, to sign this uh, concealed carry legislation. I mean, there's no shortage uh, of, of uh, places that are considered sensitive under the uh, new law signed by uh, Murphy today. Public libraries included, but uh, he could have gone to any New Jersey diner, uh, any self-respected New Jersey diner, because the good New Jersey diners all have their alcohol licenses, and you can't carry in places in which alcohol is served. Even if you're not drinking, um, diners, the vast majority of them in uh, New Jersey anyway, are off limits, as are a host of other public places and private property, too. Uh, just like New York, uh, New Jersey's bill banning Concealed carry on all private property by default, unless the uh, property owner opts in and specifically puts up signage uh, permitting concealed carry. Not generally how you treat a general right to carry in self-defense in public, as the uh, Supreme Court described the uh, scope of the Second Amendment in Bruin. But uh, as the head of the Association of New Jersey Rifle and Pistol Club, Scott Bach, told us earlier this week, this bill is not an attempt to abide by what the court said in Bruin. Instead, it is a giant middle finger to uh, the Supreme Court. And honestly, to law-abiding New Jersey residents, that, that's the thing. You know, I don't think the justices on the Supreme Court are going to lose too much sleep uh, or, or feel bad. I don't think you know uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is going to have his feelings hurt by uh, Phil Murphy signing uh, this uh, bill into law today. The people who are going to be hurt are the good people in New Jersey who are and have been unable to protect themselves against violent criminals who thought that maybe the state would recognize their right to armed self-defense, only to be told that, no, actually, that, that's not going to happen. In fact, uh, arguably, we're making things even worse, right? Sure, you might be able to get a concealed carry license if you jump through all of the hoops and hurdles, if you pay the additional fees that we're charging now in order for you to exercise a fundamental right. But once you get that license, ah, it doesn't really matter because you can't really carry anywhere anyway, right? I mean, it's 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 absurd. Uh, now, again, according to Scott Bach, uh, litigation is expected imminently. Now, uh, the holidays may throw a, a bit of a monkey wrench into the works here. It might take a couple of days for that lawsuit to be filed unless they can uh, get it in uh, this afternoon uh, or perhaps tomorrow. But uh, we do know that litigation is on the way. We also know that the Supreme Court has been asked to consider uh, New York's post-Bruin laws. Uh, that request to the Supreme Court coming on Wednesday, uh, and we don't know yet uh, whether or not the Supreme Court will agree to uh, take up uh, New York's post-Bruin gun laws now uh, in the very early stages or whether they will wait for um, the legal challenges to go to trial. Fingers crossed, and I think every gun owner out there and every Second Amendment advocate is hoping that the Supreme Court is not going to wait, not going to delay, that they will step in and say, hey, remember what we told you just a few months ago? No? Well, go back and read it, because uh, we're going to put an injunction uh, on uh, all of the provisions of the Concealed Carry Improvement Act. Again, that's what we're hoping for. And I, I think even that's the expectation 
not just the the desires and hopes of uh, many gun owners, but I think that that's the expectation that New York flouted what the Supreme Court said in Bruin. And now it is up to the Supreme Court to uh, smack those restrictions and those infringements down. Um, if that happens in New York, it will not immediately impact what's going on in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey's in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. New York is in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So different uh, appellate courts. Um, and so it would not immediately implicate New Jersey's laws. However, if the Supreme Court does intervene and uh, tell New York, hey, listen, you can't enforce uh, any or all or you know some or all of the uh, provisions of the uh, Concealed Carry Improvement Act, that would be a clear signal that um, many of the virtually identical provisions in New York's law huh, uh, are also on very thin constitutional ice. So keep your eyes peeled over the next week or so. We will be covering uh, the latest uh, uh, events at Bering Arms, and we do expect that there will be uh, some uh, some news to report on next week, even though typically the week between Christmas and New Year's things kind of settled down. That might not be the case. In fact, it probably won't be the case when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. But uh, as Murphy is signing uh, this uh, anti-civil rights bill, gun owners across the state of New Jersey are speaking out. And I got to say, I was I was actually really surprised to see this report from WHYY Public Radio uh, in uh, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, with a story on black gun owners in New Jersey objecting to the new concealed carry restrictions. Public radio is not generally where I expect to hear uh, the pro-Second Amendment side of the argument. And yet, tip of the hat to WHYY for actually uh, covering and reporting on what these gun owners have to say, including uh, Leon Grower who is a a Newark-based attorney, organizer of the New Jersey Black Gun Owners Association, who says that the uh, rise in gun ownership among black Americans, likely sparked by incidents like the murder of George Floyd, as well as the desire to defend themselves from violent crime, especially in uh, what he describes as underserved communities. He said a lot of people within the black community perceive incidents, such as the killing of George Floyd and other incidents highlighting their need for personal protection. Also, he says, in cities that have high crime rates, particularly high violent crime rates, just as in the white community, people feel empowered to defend themselves. Many people in the black community feel empowered to have a firearm to defend themselves. Now, don't forget, we actually had New Jersey lawmakers specifically saying, do we want anybody in Patterson or Camden or Trenton, all minority majority cities, by the way? Do we really want any of those people in those cities to, to have guns? We want any more people carrying guns around in those cities? Yeah. Yeah, actually, you do. Because if they want to carry a firearm in self-defense, it's their right to be able to do so. So do you want more people in Canada to be carrying? Well, no, clearly you don't, anti-gun lawmaker. But that doesn't matter. Do residents in Trenton, in Camden in Patterson, in Newark, in Jersey City, hell, in Metuchen or Red Hook, do do they have the right to carry a firearm in self-defense? And the Supreme Court has unambiguously said, yup, they sure do. Um, But again, New Jersey Democrats thumbing their nose and flipping the bird at uh, New Jersey gun owners and all those who would try to exercise their right to keep and bear arms. Grower went on to say that uh, he knows many responsible gun owners in his community who value safety and regulations that don't 
infringe on people's constitutional rights. He says many members of his organization believe there's a common misconception that many New Jersey income from marginalized communities are against gun ownership in general. He said historically, ever since slavery, firearms have been a means of self-defense and self-preservation for black people in America. There's a perception that perhaps during the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s, black people in America en masse put down their guns and lived by a nonviolent strategy, but it's far from the truth. He said the nonviolent movement was protected by groups of black people, black gun clubs in the South and elsewhere, who either made their presence known or outright surrounded or stood guard for a protest. And that is true. But there were also many individual acts of self-defense. It wasn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, chapters of the uh, uh, NRA, which actually uh, we saw in North Carolina. Uh, black gun owners uh, becoming NRA members, uh, getting access to uh, to firearms, and um, again serving as a as a as a collective group of self-defense. But you also had individuals like Fannie Lou Hamer, who talked about having a shotgun. Uh, in every corner of her house, in case the uh, night Riders or the KKK showed up outside of her door. It's not just collective self-defense. The right of individual self-defense has been practiced uh, as well. Um, again, for really as long as this nation has been a nation, black Americans, oftentimes uh, with great difficulty, uh, but they have been able to access, uh, in some cases, their right to keep in arms. And we've been working towards that more perfect union where Americans of every race, color, and creed can have access to that right. I've actually been reading, because I'm a nerd, uh, this uh, a book here, Negro Militia, Negro Militia, Militia, Negro Militia and Reconstruction by uh, Otis Singletary, which is fascinating, uh, written in 1957 by a professor at the University of Texas. I, I I will say it has a bit of a bit of a viewpoint, um, but one of the things that I have learned when I'm reading this here is that you know in in many cases the militias that were formed uh, after the Civil War in the uh, Reconstruction South, um, in many cases those militias were largely comprised of black Americans, newly freed slaves in many cases, in some fo- cases of folks who had never been enslaved, but were now, again, trying to exercise the full flower of their rights as American citizens, including their right to keep and bear arms. And you learn that um, the post-Civil War gun laws in the South, again, were aimed at depriving those newly freed slaves and other black Americans of their Second Amendment rights. At one point in 1875, there was a uh, conflict in Mississippi. Um, at that point, it was uh, largely between two groups of uh, Republicans, two wings of the Republican Party. Um, and it nearly came to, uh, I think it did reach the point of civil unrest. Um, it nearly reached the point of mass violence before there was a, a peace agreement uh, of sorts that was signed. And one of the things that the uh, the uh, incumbent governor of Mississippi agreed to in that peace agreement was the disarming of the black militia. He had argued, "Okay, listen, we'll disband the militia, but I want them to keep their guns. And uh, his opponent said, no, that's not going to fly. And so the militia was disarmed of their firearms. uh, And the uh, next election, by the way, Democrats took control, a lot of violence at the polls, a lot of voter intimidation, and uh, they maintained a lock grip on the uh, state government of Mississippi for 90 years. 
including the passage of all kinds of Jim Crow laws, including some that were aimed again at restricting the right to keep and bear arms. Well, it's not the 1870s anymore, but we still see this type of, if not quite as blatant, uh, this type of hostility towards uh, lower income Americans, towards racial minorities, to those who, let's say, the the establishment might view as uh, um, uh, not responsible enough, right? Uh, not not the right type of person to uh, to carry a farmer. We got to do something. It's that it's that it's that soft paternalism breed of racism that we see here, but it doesn't make it any better. Um, another individual that uh, WHYY talked to in New Jersey, uh, Douglas Worthen, firearms instructor in uh, Irvington, who uh, argued that historically gun laws in the U.S. have targeted and criminalized minority communities and that some of New Jersey's recent gun restrictions are no exception. WHYY uh, actually said historians recently have uncovered how the Second Amendment and several gun laws enacted around the country's founding were rooted in racism. Uh, more than said black ancestors at one point couldn't even possess any firearms at all. The infringement on people of color in this country has been around for a very, very long time. It still exists present day, but it just has a different form. It does. I would argue, by the way, that it's not that historians have just recently uncovered this, although the scholarship of uh, Nicholas Johnson of Fordham University uh, with his book, uh, Negroes and the Gun, is absolutely fantastic. That is one of the books that every gun owner in the country should read. Um, I would also add to that to Charles Cobb's This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, which is a history of gun ownership and the right to keep and bear arms during the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. Another excellent bit of history that every gun owner should know. But Worthen is right that we do still see, perhaps again, not the same language, uh, but taking a different form. And in some cases, these Jim Crow laws are still on the books. In North Carolina, the permit to purchase system was put in place back in 1919 uh, at the height of the Jim Crow era. Uh, There's been scholarship showing that to this day, Black applicants for a permit to purchase, uh, which is, again, required in order for you to purchase a handgun in the state of North Carolina, are denied at nearly three times the rate as white applicants. Now, again, uh, on its face, this permit to purchase statute is racially neutral. In practice, it's anything but. And I have a feeling that that is actually going to be the case with these new restrictions in New Jersey, too. Um, New Jersey doesn't have a host of Second Amendment sanctuaries. But uh, I have a feeling that these new gun laws uh, are going to be enforced uh, more frequently in uh, the very cities that uh, New Jersey lawmakers uh, highlighted in their opposition to allowing folks to exercise their right to armed self-defense. Arrests in places like Patterson and Camden and Trenton and Jersey City, places where, again, violent crime is higher than the state average. But I would argue that uh, that means that people have perhaps uh, more of a reason to want to carry in self-defense than they would if they live in a gated community in Cherry Hill or someplace like that. Uh, Again, it is a sad day in New Jersey. It really is. Um, I I didn't have any hope that Democrats would do the right thing here in the wake of the Bruin decision. It's not where they are. In many cases, not who they are. They view our right to keep and bear arms as a fundamental wrong, as a stain on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, something that they would love to repeal if they had the votes, but they will try to ignore as much as possible in the meantime. 
Not, not even ignore, because ignoring the right to keep and bear arms would actually be better than what they're doing. They can't repeal the Second Amendment. They know that. So instead, they want to make it meaningless. If, if, if they were just ignoring our right to keep and bear arms, that'd be fine, right? Instead, they're still targeting our right to keep and bear arms. They're arguing in court, in, uh, in state houses, uh, and in the public square that the text of the Second Amendment is meaningless, that the history and the tradition of our right to keep and bear arms means nothing, that the only thing that matters is putting in place these common sense solutions that they promise will make our country a safer place at the expense of your ability to protect yourself and the people you love. I don't buy it. And uh, like you, I am hopeful, cautiously optimistic that the Supreme Court is going to step in here first in New York uh, and then in other states around the country, including New Jersey, and uh, make it abundantly clear that these post-Bruin infringements can't stand any more than New York's and New Jersey's may issue carry laws could withstand constitutional scrutiny. But again, we will continue covering this uh, this story in New Jersey, as well as uh, paying attention to what's going on in New York. We'll give you any updates as they become available at BearingArms.com. Right now, let's uh, turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story. Our good deed of the day and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a uh, story out of Las Vegas, where an 18-year-old who admitted to shooting a man outside of a drugstore on the Las Vegas Strip was sentenced this week to probation. That's right. 28 to 72 months probation, but uh, probation nonetheless. And it gets even worse, honestly. Joshua Estrada was 17 at the time of the shooting. He ended up pleading guilty, though, as an adult uh, to one count of assault with a deadly weapon in exchange for probation. He was also told to uh, go to counseling, to uh, not touch a firearm. I mean, given that this was a felony charge, yeah, uh, and uh, cannot associate with street gangs. And the district judge, uh, Tara Clark Newberry, also warned Joshua Estrada uh, that if he violated the terms of his probation, there could be serious consequences. She said, uh, quote, I'll give you one chance on probation. One, this isn't juvenile probation, which he's been on, by the way. Yeah. So it's not that the court system is going to give him one chance. He had that one chance as a juvenile. Um, and he got probation for his juvenile crimes, right? And now that he is, um, well, not convicted, but now that he has accepted responsibility for shooting a man uh, outside of a uh, CVS pharmacy, he gets probation again. Um, the prosecutor in this case, Rachel O'Halloran, told the judge that Estrada had, quote, violent tendencies in the past for no reason. Uh, and must be subjected to therapeutic evaluation to, quote, get to those issues. Yeah. Uh, his defense attorney said that, to, well, listen, he's done community service at a boxing center. Uh, he's currently working full time for a construction company. He's been trying to get away from the environment that he was living in. Changing his ways and he has nothing but potential going. That's great. And, it, you know, listen, on the one hand, it would suck if all of that progress was derailed because he had to go to prison. On the other hand, I think it kind of sucks that you can shoot a guy in the Las Vegas Strip and walk away with probation. 
At the same time, Democrats in Nevada are clamoring for more gun control laws. Um, I think that kind of sucks, too. Listen, I, I hope that uh, Mr. Estrada can turn his life around. But I don't believe that working a full-time job and doing some community service absolves him of the consequences of his actions. And fortunately, I'm not a judge in Clark County, Nevada. And what I think doesn't matter. Young Mr. Estrada is on probation and will not have to go to prison after shooting a man on the Las Vegas Strip. All right. Today's armed citizen story from uh, Freeport, Texas, uh, where police say a homeowner shot and killed a suspected burglar. This was uh, just after 11 p.m. The uh, Freeport Police Department got an emergency call from a woman who said that multiple people had uh, broken into her home. When officers uh, got there on the scene, uh, three of them apparently had uh, fled from the home. Two of them remained at large. The uh, homeowner uh, ended up having to go to local hospital uh, where he was last known to be stable. The Freeport Police uh, Lieutenant Corey Brinkman says upon arrival, officers located an individual across the street that appeared to be suffering from a single gunshot wound. That subject's been identified and is believed to be one of the three intruders that exchanged gunfire with the homeowner. The uh, 27-year-old uh, from San Antonio, uh, who's uh, one of the three suspects, taken by an uh, air ambulance to uh, Houston with a gunshot wound to the abdomen, but he was pronounced dead after arriving at the facility. Uh, police say, the, again, that uh, the homeowner uh, was also apparently uh, injured, but uh, not severely. He is expected to recover. Um, they say they don't yet know whether or not the uh, homeowner and the suspected burglars had any relationship before the incident. Uh, but right now, homeowner not facing any charges. Police believe this to be a, a case of self-defense. We'll let you know of any updates as they become available. But uh, three against one. Why would you possibly need more than 10 rounds in your magazine? Right? Why would you? Why? Uh, come on. The average defensive gun use, less than three rounds are ever fired. So why would you need more than 10 rounds? Well, because you might very well be facing more than one assailant. I, you know, if nothing else. Not, But again, it's not a matter of need. These magazines are in common use. We've got tens of hundreds of millions of magazines that can hold more than 20 rounds in this country. They are protected by the Second Amendment. So these magazine bans don't fly to, uh, to begin with. But again, next time somebody asks you, well, what do you need? You can point to a case like this because criminals don't fight fair. Honestly, they, they're, they're, they're fine with it being three against one, four against one, five against one. They're fine taking on an 80-year-old man while they're in their 20s. Criminals don't fight fair. And you need to be able to fight back in self-defense. Finally today, our uh, good deed of the day in the right place at the right time. Willing and able to do the right thing. This is bizarre. I, I, I think that this is the first week that I have covered a story of Good Samaritans pulling people out from underneath a car. A couple of days ago, we had that story where um, a great-grandmother and her three-year-old great-granddaughter uh, were pinned underneath a car. A guy had backed up over them, basically. And uh, uh, Good Samaritans and local police were able to uh, extricate both the uh, toddler uh, and her great-grandmother. That was in Florida. Believe it or not, we've got another case. This one out of California, where officers and Good Samaritans rescued a cyclist who ended up trapped under a stolen car. Yeah, this was in uh, Watsonville, California. Uh, Watsonville Police Department says the uh, driver of a stolen car jumped from the moving vehicle and then ran when officers tried to pull him over. 
They said the moving car then struck the cyclist and wedged him underneath. I mean, I, absolutely unbelievable. So, again, thankfully, there were officers right there uh, because, well, they were, you know, trying to stop the suspect in the stolen car. Um, once the car ended up pinning the cyclist underneath, uh, several officers immediately respond, trying to lift the car. One officer ends up saying, I don't think it's going to help. Um, more are yelling, lift, 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 lift. And then other bystanders run over. And basically, that's what it was. It was just, you know, muscle power on the part of these officers and good Samaritans who were able to lift the car up enough, just enough, that that cyclist could be pulled out by one of the bystanders. According to police, uh, within minutes of the crash, the uh, 22-year-old driver was arrested. So uh, if he was hoping to use this as a distraction, it didn't work. He now faces multiple charges, including possession of a stolen vehicle, reckless driving, causing bodily injury, as well as evading a police officer with disregard to safety. Uh, the uh, 65-year-old cyclist is now in stable condition. And the Watsonville police says, would like to personally thank the Good Samaritans for their willingness to help a complete stranger. But they don't know who they are. So they're asking the public for help in uh, tracking down those Good Samaritans. Again, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing for a stranger in need. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company. And this will be the last before Christmas. So I do want to wish you uh, and yours a very Merry Christmas. We will, I'm thinking 95%, 95% confidence that we will have a uh, Barry and Arms Cam and Company uh, next week, uh, December the 30th. Look for that. We'll probably be taking a look back at the uh, the year that was for the uh, right to keep and bear arms, as well as a look ahead at uh, what we might expect in 2023. Um, so again, look for that next week. I will be mostly on vacation, but uh, the website will be updated uh, throughout the uh, uh, the weekend and the uh, week to come. So I would encourage you to visit BarionArms.com. If you like what you see, also I would encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. All you have to do, go to BarionArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As I already was saying, thanks. We're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, and analysis you won't find anywhere else. Because your support really does matter. And it really does make a difference. So thank you again. All right. I guess that music means it's time to go. But uh, I do wish you again a very Merry Christmas. And I'll talk to you before a Happy New Year. So until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free.